everyone. Welcome to our next episode of the Gladtrad podcast. We have a special guest here today, Charles Colomb. And as always, we're here with Jordan Pacheco as well. Thanks for tuning in. And before we get started here, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our anonymous patron. You know who you are. And we just want to say we appreciate you. You have a, a current book that's dropping in August uh, about uh, uh, Carl, the uh, Blessed Emperor Carl, who was blessed in the Catholic Church. It's called uh, Blessed Emperor Charles' Legacy of a Holy Emperor. So this yes, is about, indeed. of course, the, the Austrian emperor at the time of the First World War, who also was obviously a, a very saintly man. Yes. The last of the great Catholic monarchs ever for, for a very while. Much so. For a while. Thus far. Thus far. <laughs> Thus far. Thus far. I, uh... I always say thus far because, you know, in history, remember between 476 and, 800, and uh, the year 8, uh, 800 when Charlemagne was crowned emperor in the West. That was a long time. Mm-hmm. So never say never in history. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's the truth. Nothing, nothing is ever exactly the same, but nothing is ever completely different. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh- so you are so besides all these things, you're also you are the first person ever. I'm serious about this. Who have ever heard uh, describe themselves as a, as a monarchist? And of course, to my to my and Rudy's American ears, they were set on fire immediately, and we melted for a second. Uh, <laughs> well, I've, I've had that effect on people. Yes. <laughs> so and, what? And that's even even before they hear I'm a monarchist, they sometimes take a little ill. You know, sad. You know, now that now that I've been you know that we've been into traditional Catholicism. Um, it's it's not a bad word. It's not a bad word. And, and in fact, I've I would I describe myself as a closet monarchist, which means to say, like, I'm still trying to figure out the line of practical application and online LARPers, as I'm sure you've seen from time to time. And you've you've obviously aired to practical application. I've, I've, I've seen enough of your stuff. Um, but maybe for the basics for a lot of our audience that don't know what what does it mean to be a monarchist? Well, I know, right? The, the easy oh, question. I, I almost feel like saying, uh, hi, I'm Charles and I'm a monarchist. Hi, Charles. You know, monarchist <laughs> anonymous and so on. Uh, well, how does one answer that question? Basically, what it means is that uh, at its broadest, because there's many types of monarchies as there are republics, as I'm sure mm-hmm. you can guess. You know, it's just like uh, democracy, which is a word that can mean a lot of different things. We used to say back in the 70s, that uh, in the United States, we have a representative democracy. In the Soviet Union, they have people's democracy. And then Idi Amin declared that cannibalism was nutritional democracy. Oh, finally. So, so democracy could be what you wanted to be. Republics, monarchies, these are all terms that have differing means. Differing, they mean different things to different people. But as um, the broadest possible sense of the word, it's rule by one man generally, although not always, uh, succeeding to his position through heredity. Now, I say generally, but not always, because there are elective monarchies. Uh, The Holy Roman Empire for a long long time was one such, the Kingdom of Poland, Kingdom of Hungary, and of course, uh, the Holy See today is an elective monarchy. Uh, The Order of Malta, the Grand Master is an elective monarch. So, uh, it, it means basically rule by one man, but that obviously covers very, very little because, I mean, what, what's the difference between a monarchy and a dictatorship is the obvious question. That What's the difference between monarchy and despotism? Well, it's a very good question. Uh, 
we go back to people like Plato and Aristotle, uh, they identified uh, three types of government and then three perversions of them, if you will. Uh, monarchy, ruled by one man, was considered to be a good thing. But tyranny, ruled by one man for his own purposes, is a bad thing. Aristocracy, ruled by a group of men, uh, again, for the purposes of the, for the common good, was considered a good thing. But oligarchy, ruled by a, a group by itself for its own use, was a bad thing. And lastly, what they called polity, or uh, ruled by the majority of stakeholders, not the majority of people, but the majority of, uh, be it people who served in the army, people who paid taxes, uh, stakeholders, mm. the majority of them, that was considered polity versus democracy, which was ruled by the mob for itself. Now, Aristotle was of the opinion, and St. Thomas and a lot of other people in the Middle Ages followed his idea, that the best kind of government was a mixed government, wherein you had a monarch, an aristocracy, and a polity all sharing the governance of the, of the realm. Uh, what I don't think he ever uh, ever imagined was that uh, today we'd be able to have the, the opposite, a set of government where you can have tyranny, oligarchy, and mob <laughs> rule all at the all same time. time. <laughs> yeah. So you see, that that actually never did come up for Aristotle. He had the, the opposites of the three kinds of good that he said but mixed his best. He never came up with the idea of the mixed worst. Mm. That uh, That's something we've been able to invent in our own time, and I, I hope we're all proud of it. You know, we, we, we should be. But uh, seriously, having said all of that, what monarchy has come to mean, and the sense in which I take it, uh, the Middle Ages, uh, and I, I'm speaking now of Christian monarchy, because, of course, one thing that all monarchies do have in common is a claim to some connection with the divine, mm. however a given culture and its religion see that as being. So to this day, the emperor of Japan is uh, seen as the head of Shinto. Uh, in Thailand and in, uh, in Bhutan, the king is the head of Buddhism in that country. And we're all familiar with the Islamic monarchies, where, functionally speaking, the, uh, the king or the sultan is the head of the religion in his country. Uh, that's why, well, in Los Angeles, we have mosques that are endowed by the king of Saudi Arabia. We have a Buddhist temple endowed by the king of Thailand. Because monarchy has come, always in by our time, it's always bound up with the divine, however that given culture sees it. Well, Christian monarchy, as you might uh, call it, really goes back to the 300s, uh, when the first country became officially Catholic. Uh, that country was, drum roll please, Armenia. Ah, For all you people in Glendale. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, that's that's. it was the very first Christian country, the first Christian kingdom, but a number followed very quickly thereafter. Ethiopia. What does that mean, real quick, when you say the, the Christian kingdom? As in, the king is the first to have adopted Christianity, or or precisely? The people... mm -hmm. he, well, he he adopted Christianity, and it became the state religion, the established faith. Now, there's something here I, I I do have to say. It's a it's a it's a concept we really have to get down and understand. I'm going to say something very radical. We Americans are brought up to believe very deeply in what's called separation of church and state. 
And a lot of people argue back and forth over whether or not this is a good or a bad thing. I'm going to say something shocking to you. It is a non-existent thing. There is never a separation of church and state. Heresy. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, <laughs> American heresy. Well, there's, there's a deep word I'm looking for. What, oh, I, I know the word. Tough. That's it. Tough. Because, you see, every regime has an animating philosophy that serves as a state religion. It gives legitimacy to the rulership. It determines the rules whereby either the game is played or people pretend to play it. So with the Soviet Union, it was communism. You know, there is no God and Lenin is his prophet. And it, communism under, in the Soviet Union and under today in, in China and various other countries, Vietnam, Cuba, communism fit the place of a state church because a human society has to have one. It may not be called a church. It may not even be called a religion, but it exists. We have one in the United States. It's very hard to define because it's very vague. Mm -hmm. But if you break its principles, you'll be punished the way you'd be punished in any other society. You know, I wanted to, just very recently, I had a conversation with, with some, some family friends. And it's funny how America, which is uh, supposed to be a post-Enlightenment Protestant nation, um, which has obviously had at times a very tepid history of Catholicism, uh, and the nature of its Protestantism means that it, it's not, it, it kind of eschews the sort of religious uh, iconography and, and artwork. Yeah. But it's been replaced, I think, with this kind of great American identity. So you look at the, the paintings of Manifest Destiny, or as my friend pointed out, they said, you know, I don't want anyone here who doesn't worship the flag. And I, I kind of cocked my I head to the side. I said, well, that's kind of an interesting term because – if you if you say that in in regular society, it's it doesn't pass as a sort of sacrilege or anything. So if you don't have God intimately tied with the nation state, it still will manifest. You know, divine worship and the practices as you see it will still manifest. How we, Boy, salute, how, we stand, how we don't burn the flag, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely, and that that's because you need that to have a country. To, you have to have an animating principle, as I say. In our case, the uh, you had this sort of generic Protestantism that was vague enough to encompass everybody from Episcopalians to Unitarians. Um, overlaying that was a sort of religion of the country, a civic religion, in which the president was sort of the high priest, uh, the founding fathers were like the apostles, the constitution was holy writ, the flag and the uh, liberty bell and all that were holy relics. Then there were temples and shrines, Mount Vernon and... Uh, the Lincoln Memorial, Bunker Hill, all these things. Um, and they functioned together. With that was a, uh, a sort of moral consensus in that Catholics, Protestants, Jews all thought the same things were right and wrong. And this interesting mix basically worked from shortly after the Constitution was written. The American religion, I have to say, was actually put together very consciously by people like Noah Webster. They knew what they were doing. And they did it for a good reason. And the good reason was that prior to the revolution, you had a very disparate population in each of the 13 colonies, each of which was very different from its neighbors, okay. and internally was very strange and mixed. That's, you, you see that in, in who the loyalists were. Just as an example, in New England, because they were a minority, the Anglicans were usually loyalists, and the Calvinists were rebel. Again, sense. you'll find exceptions both ways, but by and large. In the South, it was reversed. There, where Anglicanism was the state church and they were dominant, 
they tended to be rebel. And the Calvinists, who were a minority and tended to be merchants and so on, they would tend to be loyalist. Well, what about the Catholics in Pennsylvania? Where, where, where would we sit? Well, like most other uh, small minorities, they divided along, for want of a better word, class lines. The wealthier you were, the more integrated into society, the likelier you were to be a rebel. The poorer you were, or the more on the outs, the likelier you were to be a loyalist. Hmm. And that just think it wasn't just the case with us. You look at the Dutch in New York, the more assimilated you were, the more um, Anglo, if you will, the likely you'd be a rebel. The more you retained your Dutch traditions and so forth, the likelier you were to be a Tory. There's one interesting case of a fellow, I forget his name now, and it's Dutch anyway, so I'd probably murder if I tried to pronounce it. But he was a, uh, he was a Dutch New Yorker and had a position under the colony. After the revolution, being a loyalist, he had to go to Canada. But then in the 1790s, and he was still in government service in, uh, up in Canada. But then in the 1790s, uh, the British conquered the Cape from the Dutch. And suddenly they needed Dutch-speaking officials. So this fellow was transferred <laughs> from Canada to South Africa. Right. That's where he goes. <laughs> and that's where he died. He ended up, you know, his descendants are there still. But I mean, what a bizarre story. What a weird concatenation of circumstances. And that, you know, that's what I love about history. I want to I want to back up because I remember Rudy was talking about this couple a couple of days ago. But does this mean so if it just to back up to the very front. So as an American, and this is where a lot of us start on, as American, or that's what you think, then I think as you go into traditional Catholicism, obviously we understand the social kingship of Christ. It's something that's very, very important. And but that also means that the M word, to be a monarchist, to believe in a king, isn't, isn't a, a, a horrible, outdated, archaic sort of thing. So why, why the question would be then, why would advocate for a system that's not, that's not the federal republic, right? What does monarchy have in terms of its institution that is, would make it more agreeable or better than having a republic, if that's the case? All right. Well, let me, let me back up just a minute. I'll finish your first question, then I'll move on to that. And the, to answer, to finish with your first question, uh, the, um, the thing is that before the revolution, all these disparate groups had only one thing in common, that moral code I referred to and loyalty to the king. The revolution comes, the loyalty to the king is gone. So what do you replace it with? And that was why people like Noah Webster and all that created the religion of the country. Uh, and then as time has gone on, the Christian element has been slowly sucked out of it. And finally, in the 60s, that moral consensus was smashed. And the problem is that the, as the national religion slowly de-Christianized and then lost its moral foundation, it became sort of free-floating. Now, to move on to the question you just asked, um, well, there are several things going on at once. Firstly, it's important to bear in mind that most of what has made our federal republic successful was actually borrowed from the monarchy. All of our institutions, the sheriffs, the, the police, the city councils, the governors, all that stuff, and especially the uh, common law we got from the monarchy. We forget that. It's also important to bear in mind that the founding fathers who set the thing up were products of a monarchical culture, and they were the last generation to be so. 
people have uh, often noted that we have never yet had a generation of statesmen as able and eminent as the founding fathers were. Mm-hmm. And they were the last generation of statesmen produced under the crown. Nobody ever seems to notice that. Basically, I would say that the problem with our system, and mind you, when Star Spangled Crown, I played with ideas. I must say at the outset that I am not, I have no idea of overthrowing the United States or uh, <laughs> bringing in a king or anything like that. Well, now's the I perfect would, time to do it. Well, yeah, you know, now the streets are open. Now, now the sheriff's expanded, you might as well. <sighs> Charles, it's okay. We can, you know, we're in a safe space here. You could tell us the truth. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, this this has <laughs> got to be the lamest apocalypse ever. <laughs> you know, I, I swear. I mean, what if? Okay, you've got zombies. They're brain dead. We understand that. What if they've all got rubber teeth? <laughs> Instead of biting you, just kind of, you know, try to not gum you to death. You know, uh, it's it's. It's so stupid. And, you know, you, you, the, the, the poor fellow who was murdered in Minneapolis is completely forgotten. And, of course, the question that's asked is, how come I couldn't go to my aunt's funeral? And he had a huge open-air funeral. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are asking that kind of question. Right. Uh, and my, my great worry is that in destroying the uh, uh, instruments of law and order, the people who are doing so will bring down upon their heads, and that means all of our heads, just so you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, would that it were just them. You know, I have said for several years that they were sowing dragon's teeth. And I have prayed that it only affect them. But history being what it is, it'll affect us all. You keep pushing and pushing and pushing. You know, if you tell people that loving America means you're a racist, you will create racists. If you tell people that resisting white supremacy means destroying businesses and pulling down statues, you will make white supremacists. You will do it. And the only person who's responsible at the end of it will be you yourselves. Uh, And when, when a bunch of morons start shooting up the joint in response to you, you can thank yourself. I hope you can face uh, face what you created bravely. I, you know, one of the great, and this is completely off topic, but I gotta say, one of the great accomplishments of our country. And you know, people think, oh well, you're a monarchist, you must hate the United States. Oh, contraire, mon frère. I mean, I love this. I should say that country since I'm not over there right now. But I love that country. So much. I agreed to die for it. Um, and one of the one of the great accomplishments of our nation, which I think is unparalleled in the pages of history, is that after the bloodiest and most horrible war we had ever fought, I mean the Civil War, the war between the states, the war of northern aggression, the war of the rebellion, call it whatever you want. Fifty years after that thing ended, less than fifty years. 50 years after Gettysburg, they were able to have a reunion with old Confederates reliving Pickett's Charge, running down the hill into the arms, into the arms of the old Union veterans who had shot at them that day. 
And they threw their arms around. Believe me when I tell you that America in 1913 was not a huggy place. You know, these were not good French Canadians like my people. Oh, no. right. <laughs> they were they were very standoffish. But that, to my mind, I mean, my earliest memories are the closing years of the Civil War centennial. And the bravery of both sides in battle was celebrated and so on and so forth, which is what you have to do if you want to reconcile two halves of a, of a nation that's been split like that. Anywhere else in the world, that would have been a festering wound, like Ulster. But no, no, it was papered over, it was plastered over. And these morons have ripped it apart again. And there will be the devil to pay. I seem to recall in, in Star Spangled Crown, um, there was a conversation about, so they, they, they bring in, of course, the, the, is he the King of Lichtenberg or? Um, the, the, is the Grand Duke of Lichtenberg. Yes, Grand Duke of Lichtenberg, which doesn't exist, but can be based on the enough. Yeah. Uh, oddly enough, it doesn't exist. Yes, right. But I do. I do remember that there was this this emphasis inside his rule of uniting the people. So he would make m- emphasis that uh, that while his ancestors were also with American ancestors at battles that they had never heard of. I think Calumden was one of them. Calumden. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I think that what's funny is in the concept of monarchy, which might be different. I th- what we're seeing now is that uh, maybe this is your your view, but. With, with kind of the republic system that we set up, our leaders are really emphasis for one sort of people, whatever across the spectrum that people might be, because that's, yeah. their, elector, that's their electorate. But as a monarchy, you are, are the monarch, you are the symbol of, of your nation state, and it's divinely appointed. So you have to be, in a way, patron of all your people, qua people. So your exactly. idea is unity in a way that it doesn't seem to exist inside, inside our system. Well, you can't, really, because, uh, and again... Uh, talking once more about the kingship of Christ, which is very, very important, and bringing back the Catholic aspect. A Catholic king, and now we're being really sectarian here. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry about that. Although, to be fair, the notion does survive amongst, uh, certainly amongst the Orthodox, and to a great degree, even among the Protestant kings. Um, A king is trained to think of himself as being the vice-regent, as it were, of, uh, of God. Christ the King, Christus Rex, is the great exemplar. Now, mind you, that doesn't mean that every king is perfect or even that every king is pious. What it does mean is that that's the standard that's held up to them. Now, a president, on the other hand, is in kind of a weird position, specifically a president of the United States, because, on the one hand, he is supposed to be the leader of his party, there's an old joke that any president spends half his time trying to learn his job and half the time trying to get reelected. <laughs> uh, inevitably, the people who voted for, against his opponent will at the very least feel a certain disaffection for him. It may not be overwhelming, but you know, you're always hoping he'll make a mistake so as, you know, the next, the next the other party will get in if you don't happen to like him uh, or, or be part of his party. Now, for the king, uh, especially a king in what I like to call an executive monarchy, again, people have in mind absolute monarchies, Louis XIV, Henry VIII, so forth. Uh, on the one hand, those were, to my way of thinking, kind of corruptions in a way of the kind of monarchy I feel to be uh, best. And on the other hand, none of them, not even Henry VIII, were nearly as absolute as the kind of government we live under now. 
which can determine that infants are not human beings and can change the nature of marriage. If Henry VIII had been a Supreme Court justice, he would have simply declared polygamy legal. But then he wouldn't have had to, uh, you know, off his wives. <laughs> so uh, that's something we have to bear in mind. When we look at the past, before we start getting all moralistic about it, we should look first at ourselves and see what it is we accept that our ancestors would not have. As moral judges, in my humble estimation, we're kind of low down on the total pole. Because hmm. you know, we take a lot of garbage that they would have not sat still for. So probably setting ourselves up as the end-all and be-all, I mean, it's fun. You feel good about yourself, which is as good moderns, we know that's what life is really all about, just feeling good about yourself. But if you want anything beyond that, like truth or reality, then you've got to bear in mind that your presuppositions have been spoon-fed to you, and you know what you think you know because you're told you know it. Mm. And you don't, necessarily. So, to return to the question, pardon my, uh, my getting off track. Oh, no, that's what the show's for. <laughs> well, I, I tell you, you know, I, I, I say, I tell people, sending me off on tangents, there's no sport to it. You know, it's like shooting a goldfish <laughs> in a bowl. I, I, I just, squirrel. The, uh, I, uh, but at any rate, I digress. So, again, uh, the thing is that the president then, at the same time, has to somehow act as nonpartisan chief of state. Remember, I said he is, in a sense, the high priest of the American religion. So what do we find? He presides over days of mourning and prayer at the National Cathedral. Uh, he, he attempts to comfort the nation in times of crisis. You know, one thing that a lot of, uh, a lot of my uh, friends have across the political spectrum, and yes, I'm old enough to be able to have them, across the political spectrum. That's a second American heresy you've uttered. I know, I know. Well, see, I've always felt that uh, <laughs> individual human beings are more important than politics. I know, <laughs> I'm sorry, I said it. That's I, what I'm I, thinking, but I'm losing friends left and right, Charles. <laughs> yeah, well, you got to hold on to them when you can. I mean, I'll put it this way. My best friend at the time, who's dead now, but my best friend at the time and I violently disagreed over the election of 1980. Now, if we had allowed that to come between us, he would have lived another 20 years with us disaffected. And do we, does anybody really remember who ran in 1980? I wasn't even alive. That's my point. <laughs> See how stupid it is? Losing something real like a friendship over a political issue because they're not worth it and they right. don't care about you. Yeah, it's not as though uh, you're breaking up with your pal over uh, over uh, supporting this one or that one is going to help anybody, least of all the person you think you're in favor of. Who, as I say, you probably aren't going to remember, and at the very least, you'd be severely disappointed in. Uh, it's crazy. I mean, we have such a skewed, and again, it goes back to being a republic. Because mm. in a republic, everything becomes political. The space for non-political reality gets ever smaller. In a monarchy, presuming that the king is an effective force, because in a crowned republic like Britain or the Netherlands or Canada, 
they're unfortunately they've, they've got very a lot of the division that you'll find in a republic. Um, but when you've got a truly apolitical head of state, whose purpose is to, as uh, Franz Joseph said to Theodore Roosevelt, protect my people from their politicians. Uh, <laughs> well, then uh, the role of the, of the monarch makes a lot of sense when he's the patron of the arts, he's patron of education, he's patron of hunting, patron of wildlife, patron of this, that. In other words, stop and think about it. All of the most important and enjoyable elements of life, from the very high, like religion, to the not so high, like sports, the king is patron of. Mm, and yeah. those, those things are where you actually live. That's where you spend your, most of your time. Politics, per se, you know, unless they're rioting in the streets and so forth, which is a different story. Uh, that's almost war. But normal politics, um, they really should not affect in a, in a decently run country. They should not affect the lives of the vast majority of people. And you shouldn't be willing to dump a long-standing friendship over something as ridiculous as the counting of snouts in an election. I mean, what could be more insane than losing a childhood friend because he supports uh, moron A and you support moron B. (laughs) (laughs) When we talk about Christendom, when we talk about kind of the strength of Catholic monarchy, and it seems to me like what I found out is just kind of reading about the Middle Ages in particular is compared to our system nowadays, it's, it's decentralized. So the idea is that the king might have a divine right to rule, but where now uh, a president gets on or he tweets or enacts the courts or whatever you have you, and it seems like it can affect wide-sweeping change, it can end a friendship or anything. It doesn't seem like the, the boot of the king is actually very much felt. And I, I call them the Americanisms, but one of the things that I'm shedding even up until our revolution is that compared to how our system is designed now, you know, if, if our ancestors went to war over uh, specific taxes on things like tea or no taxation without representation, I can't imagine how we didn't do anything for the passive income tax or how, you know, when coronavirus hit, the whole of the world got shut down here. People were out of the job being fined and jailed for wanting to work. Uh, it doesn't seem compared to the past that we're, we're doing much better in that sort of republic system. But yet we're all supposed to believe that we have a vote, we have a say. It doesn't well, seem yeah, like well, it. Well, we have, sure we have a say. You can say whatever you like. It just doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> you can say whatever you want. That's fine. I mean, uh, unless you're in academia or media, in which case you lose your job. But the, uh, there's a price <laughs> to be paid for freedom. Uh, well, you, you know, the, the thing, too, to bear in mind, uh, and this, since you, you touched on the Middle Ages, is a very important question. And that is the question of uh, power versus authority. Very, very important. They're two very different things. Authority is the right to say what ought to happen. Power is the ability to make it so. So your doctor has the authority to prescribe a treatment for you, but he doesn't have the power to make you do it, although you have the power to do it. All right, so in the Middle Ages, authority was concentrated. It was concentrated on the church. It came from God. It was mediated through the church uh, and a, symbolically via coronation. 
the rite of coronation, which was considered a sort of eighth sacrament, uh, to the king. And the king had the authority. But power was very diffuse. The king had some. The church had some. The cities had some. The guilds had some. The lords had some. Even the peasants had some. We go back to Aristotle's mixed government. Uh, and a king, a good king, was like an orchestra leader, hmm. coordinating the different interests to work together for the good of the whole. If you had a bad king, and you certainly did have them, mind you, you also had a lot of royal saints. People forget that part. But you did have some really bad kings. And what happened when you had a bad king? Well, he could make life really unpleasant for the people immediately around him. That's true. But that was not the big threat to the realm. The threat to the realm was not despotism. It was anarchy. Because the medieval state did not have the appurtenances that we consider essential for government. They didn't have an income tax. They, they didn't have a, uh, a, an internal revenue or, or a secret police. They didn't have any of that stuff. And the interesting thing was that, to a certain degree, the medieval state was kind of a, a mutually imagined construct amongst all the subjects. The typical example, and you, you can see this even in our remaining legal terms, the phrase the peace, you know, you've heard it, justice of the peace, mm. uh, keeping the peace, breaking the peace. What does that mean? It means the king's peace. And it was literally considered to be the normal state of affairs. The justice of the peace enforced it. A breach of the peace, breaking the peace, meant violating the king's peace. And you would be punished. But the way it was done was very interesting. So, for instance, if you had a major highway, it was always the King's Highway. In California, of course, you have El Camino Real, which was a transplanting of the same concept, which the Spanish did a lot of. They had a number of these Caminos Reales in different places. But uh, So you've got the King's Highway. Why is it called the King's Highway? Well, there are, every so often there are uh, stables, royal stables with horses, so the King's messengers can go back and forth. Mm -hmm. That's why it's the King's Highway. And where a highwayman on, on a lesser road uh, might get off with a fine if he, if he was caught. If you were a robber on the King's Highway and you were caught, you were dead. Mm. But how did it work? Well, somebody's, you know, robbing people on the King's Highway and all the locals get together. They sound the you and cry. They go after him in the name of the king. These so-called posse comitatus. They grab the guy and uh, they bring him to the justice of the peace. He's given a fair trial and strung up. So, <laughs> well, I mean, we're kind of rough and ready in those days. There's a reason why people would try to get their cases heard in church courts rather than civil courts. Mm. But at any rate, the, uh, the thing is that uh, the king's peace then was seen as, a, as an almost palpable thing. And each of the subjects of the king were responsible for maintaining it wherever they were. And we... We still have the name, although we don't. We no longer have the idea. We still have the, the the name in law. A lot of our laws like that. We still talk, for instance, uh, about king's bench jurisdiction hmm. in American law, which means the right of a higher court to investigate or, or to intervene into the doings of a lesser court. We still call that king's bench jurisdiction, even though we haven't had a king's bench since the Revolution. Uh, so the thing is that. Um, we, we tend to forget 
where all this came from. And today, what has happened is that we live in precisely the reverse. Power is concentrated. It's concentrated in government, media, academia to a great degree, higher academia, of course. I'm not talking about your, uh, your community college, but certainly the Ivy Leagues have a lot of power. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, your, uh, your community college just tries to, you know, to imitate them. So mm -hmm. instead of being uh, a well-degreed stupid Marxist, they are stupid Marxists. Anyway, the point is, I wish I'd stop interrupting myself. Anyway, <laughs> the, uh, the point is that uh, power then is concentrated. But authority is diffuse amongst the people. And who are the people again? Well, nobody really knows. They could be anybody. All you know is if you do the wrong thing, you'll be punished. Right. If you don't believe me, light up in a restaurant and see what happens to you. Mm -hmm. Say the wrong thing. Use a racial epithet. I'm not in favor of using racial epithets. But don't pretend to me that you believe in free speech. If you're going to be uh, in favor of ostracizing people, use them. I mean, today, that sort of language gets the kind of punishment that in my day, foul language got. And see, here's the thing. I don't believe in freedom of language, in freedom of speech. I don't believe in it. I do not. I don't think you should be allowed to swear in front of women. I don't think you should be allowed to blaspheme in public. Mm-hmm. But see, I've told you up front I don't believe in it. Our masters pretend they do, and that's what drives me crazy. And over here, and believe me, I know the Holocaust happened. I had enough relatives killed in it. But uh, it drives me a little bit cray-cray that they criminalize Holocaust denial. Why? Do I like Holocaust deniers? No. But if you're going to criminalize something like that, do not pretend the way you're constantly yapping that you believe in free speech, because you don't. I don't. But, you know, I would not criminalize historical errors. I mean, if I were, I'd have to arrest four-fifths of the history uh, faculties in the United States. <laughs> they'd all have to be, they'd all have to be uh, go off to the who's count. I mean, imagine the poor, uh, the poor people at Harvard stuck in the Cambridge County Jail. Very sad. Rudy, do you remember the other day... Uh, what was it you were talking about? Like legislation of morality and like what it means for a government to do or not to do. Um, yep. um, something along the lines of, uh, okay, so the question is perfect for a monarch, right? So if the idea is like, does the monarch, especially a Catholic monarch, have, what obligation does he have towards the promulgation or protection of the Catholic faith in relations to other religions, other ideas, people who are his subjects but not, might not share the king's oh uh, yes the context of this yeah the context of this is that we were um we were looking at dignitatis humanae and uh we were trying to suss out the objections that the society had towards the document and so we were reading initially just a few chapters of the beginning and comparing it to the objections as the society of saint pius x had and we saw within this like a big conversation about well <clears throat> how is it how 
in a Catholic monarchy, for example, how would it function if you had other subjects that were not Catholic within the realm? Well, it would a lot would depend upon the direct circumstances. See, one of the one of the great things about monarchy is that it's very flexible, and it, it's in a position to adjust to realities as they face them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, if you have a country that is already primarily Catholic, and there are very few uh, non-Catholics, mm-hmm. it's 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 quite easy. You know, you, you just don't allow them to proselytize. Or advertise their services. Okay. But by the same token, the king has a, not a supernatural obligation because the Catholic king does have a supernatural obligation to his subjects to protect them from heresy. The way your father does. He has that obligation. Now, people of other faiths, he does have an obligation to them. A natural obligation. And how does he deal with that? Well, the answer is it's always been a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. The church teaches that error has no rights, but the enforcement of any given law uh, depends upon its utility. In other words, I don't mean to be utilitarian, but if enforcing something rigidly would cause greater evils than not, you don't. So to put this another way, I may have the right to your house, okay? I actually own the lease. But it so happens that you and your pregnant wife and your 16 children are living there. And if I exercise my right, you're going to be out on the street. And as it so happens, because you're not a very nice person, none of your relatives and nobody else will take you in. Mm -hmm. So while I have the absolute right to throw you out, I probably shouldn't. Because the greater evil, i.e. your wife and children being homeless, especially your pregnant wife, would result from my exercising my perfectly legitimate right. Another example of this, uh, this kind of moral thinking, uh, you, own a, you own a bread shop. I'm starving. Now, my right to self-preservation is higher than your right to property. So right. I can steal a loaf of bread if I really am starving. But I can't empty the cash register. You see, there's a there's a difference. Mm-hmm. And of course, I have to be really starving. That's the other thing. Well, I mention all this by way of um, um, laying the groundwork. Because while the church does not believe that uh, error has rights, and moreover considers in a Catholic country the idea of non-Catholic faiths being given equal rights with her is wrong. At least that's what it always was until Vatican II. Um, Nevertheless, she has tolerated certain arrangements. So, for instance, when James II, uh, the brother of Charles II, became king of England in 1685, with papal approval, he was crowned in an Anglican coronation rite and became the head of the Church of England and the head of the Church of Scotland. Um, the king, the Catholic kings of Saxony and Bavaria and the Austrian emperor were actually the heads of the Protestant religion in their realms. But those religions were not allowed to proselytize. And for a very long time, they were not allowed to uh, advertise their worship services or or have buildings that were obviously churches. Mm. And that's the way it was in Franco-Spain. Now, 
this sounds very, very radical and strange to us because we're not used to thinking of religion as actually true. But we do, like every other society, punish ideologies that we think are bad. And we punish those who hold them. I cite again, Holocaust denial. Here, you will go to jail if you deny the Holocaust. Now, whether or not you should or you should or should not be able to is beside the point. The point is that the state sees Holocaust denial as a doctrine that is dangerous to public order. Mm -hmm. And so it criminalizes it. Every society does. Uh, when I was young, they uh, did their best to suppress communism, and pornography was made very, very difficult. Because that's what societies do. In a Catholic society, uh, heresies are considered evils that one way or the other have to be kept in their place. Now, a lot depends on how many people have that heresy as to whether or not you're, what your measures are going to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and again, also their behavior. That's the other thing. Because in the countries I mentioned, uh, not in Britain, but in Austria, in uh, Saxony and Bavaria, the Protestants, uh, although small minorities, and not, well, not in Saxony, but Bavaria and Austria, small minorities, nevertheless, they prove themselves loyal to the king and pillars of order. So the more they proved that, the, uh, the, the, the better off they were. In earlier days, when they were conspiring with the king's enemies, well then, then they were like communists. In Austria in particular, you know, the, the uh, Protestants here were the natural allies of the, uh, of the Prussians. So they were like a fifth column. Well, what do you do with that? I don't know. Ask the Japanese in World War II, who, by the way, did not deserve it. That was one of the funny things. This is totally outside the question, but it's worth mentioning. Uh, President Roosevelt had uh, wondered about the loyalty of Japanese Americans before the war. So he sent a, uh, he commissioned this fellow, who was a, a wealthy businessman, to look into it. And he did, and he made a report. His report found that, in, by and large, with very, very few exceptions, the Japanese Americans had transferred their intense loyalty to the emperor to the United States mm -hmm. in almost exactly the same way. And so, while there were many examples of Germans and Italians, German and Italian Americans, favoring or even aiding the Axis during World War II. There was not one of a Japanese in the Western United States. Not one. And Franklin Roosevelt knew it when he sent them to camps. Not a, not a fun story, but at any rate, the, uh, the, the point I'm making, sorry? Oh, I was, I was just going to say, well, it, it, it makes not necessarily sense, but I think to kind of the point, it's that you don't have to because it's true. It's like it's like there are obviously we know that of like the not all the Jewish ghettos in different parts of the empires, whether it's in Rome or in Spain or something, were were just always routinely cleaned out, fourteen ninety two notwithstanding or something. So we do know that you can have a difference of 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 religious group, a cultural group inside your your kingdom, but there is a sort of a, uh, a desire still for a monarch to see to the protection of his peoples as long as they remain good subjects. Would that be fair? Exactly. Exactly. And it was interesting, you know, as far as the, uh, well, we could take three groups, or uh, two anyway, the Jews and the Gypsies. Uh, now, it was interesting, in, um, 
the ghettos, the medieval ghettos, uh, people forget that they were actually ruled by the rabbis. The minute you set foot into a ghetto, you were a Gentile. You were stuck with rabbinical law because that was what governed the life of the ghetto. Now, it is true that leaving that setup was a great uh, inducement to conversion for a lot of people. Yeah. But nevertheless, it's important to bear in mind that they ran their own affairs. Similarly, when uh, the gypsies first showed up in Europe in the 1300s, they were originally from India. Uh, nobody knew what to do with these strange people who just arrived were doing all sorts of things. Uh, but they were able to get a writ of protection from the Holy Roman Emperor. And they came under his direct direct defense, uh, uh, his direct uh, protection. So whenever they were threatened, they'd whip out a copy of uh, a copy of the decree and say, you know, leave us alone. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yep. You know, you, if you've got a problem with us, take it up with the emperor. Don't, don't bother us. Now, interestingly enough, too, and this goes back to the flexibility of monarchy with specific situations. Uh, one of the great, to my way of thinking, miracles of governance was the Spanish rule from California to Argentina for two and a half centuries after the Congress. We always think about the Congress and how horrible it was and all that. Well, our views of that are somewhat skewed. But once that was done, the Spanish did a lot of interesting things. Firstly, they had a minimum of military force. They had virtually nothing in the way of policing. It was all self-done. Uh, the Spanish dominions were divided in two, the Republic of the Spanish and the Republic of the Indians. And what that meant was that the Indian towns and regions were all under their own rulers, the caciques. And many of these people became Spanish noblemen. To this day, in Spain, they're descendants of the Aztec and uh, Inca emperors who were oh. members of the Spanish nobility. Interesting. Uh, yeah, and they, they had Indian professors in Spanish universities and things like that. Beyond that, though, because the territories were so varied and so very, very, very different, uh, the Council of the Indies in Sevilla would pass a, a, an order, the king would approve it, the law would go to the, to the New World, but the local governor of every province would examine the new decree. And if he did think it was really going to work, you know, <laughs> according to local conditions, he would send a response, and the response was beautiful. It said, I obey, but I do not execute. Hmm. Oh. Now, when he did that, what would happen is that an anonymous visitador would be sent to, his, uh, to that province and would look around and would decide for himself if, in fact, yep, man's right. This just isn't going to fly here. Mm -hmm. uh, and if that was his decision, then the governor was fine. But if, on the other hand, he said, nah, nah the guy, is, is there are problems here. Well, then the governor would be out of a job. Hmm. So the governor was basically, if, if he did that, this was a, a nuclear option. It was the make or break thing. If he really didn't know what he was doing, it would be the end of his career. And, you know, you talk about checks and balances, which are an important feature of our system, or supposed to be anyway. That's good accountability. Accountability is what the checks and balances are supposed to provide. 
is, is very, very important to make any system run. Mm -hmm. And the Spanish were masters at it. Um, you play, as it were, one end against the middle in order to ensure equity. That brings to mind also the the quality of the the person that was required to do that job. You know, it probably would have to be someone with a discerning uh, a discerning eye. You know, to be able oh, yeah. to to say, oh well, this will definitely stand here, and then if not, I'm sorry, but I don't know how it can make that work. You know. Yeah, and the uh, the thing is, you've got to bear in mind that these people all had classical educations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they knew their Latin and Greek. And beyond that, they had acquired the, the habit of learning. I mean, that's why you look at these people, not just Spanish, Portuguese, French, British, Dutch, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, they went all over the world. And they built roads and dams and things like that without being trained in it. Well, how did they do that? Well, they did it because having had classical educations, they knew how to learn things. Mm -hmm. They needed to learn them. I don't know how to build. I don't know how to build a dam. <laughs> so I'll learn how. I'll learn how to build a dam, and then they would learn. I mean, uh, mind you, the the specialization that's so much a part of the modern world has had certain strengths and certain certainly pushed our technology you know, into the, into the stratosphere. Mm -hmm. But it also has certain defects. So one of them is that when you're so specialized in one area, you really don't know anything else about anything else. Mm -hmm. But you think you did. And there's no worse combination than arrogance and ignorance. Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, I could tell stories, but the point is that uh, one of the, the problems, you might say, with real Republican government is that it does encourage this kind of specialization. Uh, the monarch has to be jack of all trades, even if he's master of none. He's got to have some sort of interest in the arts, some sort of interest in science. Mm -hmm. And if you look at all of the all of the academies of art and the academies of science in, in Europe, they're all founded by kings. Yeah, and they were founded by kings who had an actual interest in. Them. It's interesting that in our country, and this goes back once more to the difficulty of the president having to be at once high priest and uh, apolitical chief of state, is that certainly since Roosevelt's time, and to some degree at different times before, uh, they have tried to take on this role of patron of arts and learning that on the one hand is absolutely natural to a head of state, but on the other hand, constitutionally, makes no sense in our system. Hmm. So uh, you have things like the National Endowment to the Arts, the National Endowment to the Humanities. But because they're not really governed by anyone's single taste, they go all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the intention is, is proper. The intention is very good. I, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of Roosevelt or JFK. But it's, uh, it's interesting to note that our three presidents who were the most involved in this side of the thing were also the three who were considered the most regal in manner. FDR, JFK, Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And that is because, for whatever reason, on some level, they, uh, they understood that a great nation needs to encourage these things. Even though 
if you were a strict constitutionalist, you'd have to say there's really no place for the government to be involved. The melding of, of on the constitutional issue. Because I, I know in Star Spangled Crown, one thing that's very interesting is, you've talked about this prior, it's not just an absolute monarchy that comes and takes over. It's in Star Spangled Crown, it's a, it's a melding of the American constitution. There is a keeping of the Bill of Rights, if I remember correctly, but it's also a bringing in of the understanding of how the king appoints, how the king is going to govern the council of a hundred or whatever it was that was assembled. Uh, what is your estimation of, in terms of how monarchy looks or what would probably be the best sort of fit? Uh, would it, is it constitutional monarchy? Is it a sort of more medieval system where there's power to the guilds and to, to the estates and that sort of thing? What does it look like? Well, well, see, that's the theory. The theory behind constitutional monarchy, like Britain, like the Netherlands and so forth, is that you've got a limited monarchy wherein uh, you have a mixed government and so on. Now, that was certainly the case at the time of the American Revolution, uh, and certainly under the Stuart kings. It is not the case now, because it's no longer a mixed government. I mean, the... the and, and I'm going to say something that's going to be sound very unkind, and I don't mean it to, because to this day, these constitutional monarchs still perform a useful task, a shadow of what their forebears had and did. But still, their countries would all be worse off without them. And, and you know, by the same token, there are monarchies I would never want to live under, the Ottoman Sultan, the, the Manchu Empress, but by that token... They were never replaced by anything better. Hmm. I wouldn't. Yeah. I, I may not have wanted to live under the Sultan, but I wouldn't have been able to live under Ataturk. You know, I, I might not have really liked life under uh, the Chinese emperor, but I surely couldn't have lived under Mao. Mm -hmm. So I mean, you, you know, we, we have to get a, a bit of proportion here. So similarly, there is no existing constitutional monarchy today that would be improved by becoming a republic. But fortunately, because they are so, their wings are so clipped, and they've been so reduced, they can't provide many, for their peoples, many of the benefits that their forebears could. Uh, Franz Josef, the Emperor of Austria, I mentioned earlier, but it's a good thing to meditate on, as it were. Theodore Roosevelt came to visit him after he retired from the presidency. And he asked him, well, you know, what do you feel your role as a modern monarch is. And Franz Josef said, protecting my people from their politicians. Mm. And that's, that is precisely what the modern constitutional monarchy cannot deliver. Uh, except in the very, the, in the most extreme of cases. Uh, in the, uh, it's interesting that in the, in the Commonwealth, Canada, Australia, the Crown Commonwealth, the Queen is still Queen, but uh, although the, those countries are independent of Britain completely, the Queen remains the sovereign. Uh, but as in Britain, the politicians run everything. Mm. However, there is a vice-regal official appointed at the advice of the Prime Minister of the day. So although he represents the Queen, he holds office usually at the pleasure of the Prime Minister, or the, the chief politico. Uh, nevertheless, from time to time, when things have gotten very bad in those countries, the vestigial reserve powers, as they're called, have been exercised. This was true in uh, Canada in 1926, when the, uh, the prime minister of the time in Canada, uh, Mackenzie King, 
wanted the government dissolved because the Royal Commission was about to expose how corrupt his government were. And then is now a Royal, corrupt, a Royal Commission's life ends with the end of the government that appointed him. So to avoid that happening, he asked the uh, Governor General to dissolve Parliament, which is the, the, the way it's done. The Governor General, Lord Bing, who had commanded Canadians in World War I, which is why he got the job, uh, he said no. He knew exactly what Mackenzie King was trying to do. I'm not going to do that. So then he went to the opposition to see if they would patch together a government that would last long enough to allow the commission to finish. They agreed to it. He refused to call for new elections. But in the end, one of the parties backed out. The government collapsed. He had to do it anyway. But this was a big scandal, and it ruined Lord Bing's career. Uh, similar thing in 1972 in Australia, when uh, Gough Whitlam, uh, lost control of the Senate, which in Australia, unlike most of the other Commonwealth countries, has almost equal powers with the lower house. So if they refuse to finance the government, you're, you're stuck. You can't pass it over. And that's what happened. So what Whitlam, Whitlam refused to call for the elections. Uh, and he said he was going to start uh, financing the government through loans and stuff, which was a complete violation of the Constitution. Well, like the sovereign he represents, the governor general is the supreme guardian of the Constitution. And so he gave Whitlam every chance to ask him to call for new elections. He wouldn't do it, so he dismissed him. And it destroyed him politically. And, of course, that is the thing about the reserve powers. Any governor general that uses them knows this is the end of his career. Hmm. It's, it's the nuclear option. You only do it because not doing anything is so much worse. And they say that the governor general's job, like that of the queen, is to ensure that there's a government in office. Um, but that's all great, and it, it has prevented certain extraordinary horrors from going on. But it doesn't do any good most of the time. Uh, because usually, just as in our country, the horrors the governments want to perpetrate upon their peoples are within the letter of the law. Mm -hmm. And there is no living person to say no. In our system, the Constitution, in a sense, occupies the place of a king. But the Constitution is a piece of paper. And the only people who have the quote-unquote right to interpret it, at least the way the system has evolved, are the oracles of Delphi that we call the Supreme Court. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it, and it doesn't matter how, even if it contradicts the letter of the Constitution, if the uh, if their high mightinesses sign off on it, it's the law of the land, and you're stuck, mor uh, moron. Live with it. Eat it. You don't have a choice. Yeah. And, practically speaking, they are not responsible to anyone. Um, it's... You know, G.K. Chesterton, who uh, it would be very difficult to call either a Republican or a monarchist, simply because he saw the problems with both. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. They he happen. said, one thing you have to understand, he said, above all, is that monarchy is a personal form of government. Uh, a republic is an impersonal form of government. And so I guess a big part of the question is how human you want your rulers to be. I know in our country we like to say that we're a nation of rule of uh, ruled by laws, not men. But that's not true. No, it can't ever really be true. 
because the what is the law? It is in our system. It's whatever our masters tell, it, tell us it is. And they changed their minds. Mm-hmm. In 1890, uh, United States versus uh, Trinity Church, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, the, these United States are a Christian country. And they gave all sorts of reasons in addition to uh, the law as to why this was so. What's interesting is that the vast majority of the things they cited have not changed. And yet successive courts have said, oh, no, 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 it's not a Christian country. So who's on first? (laughs) What? (laughs) No, he's on second. I don't know. (laughs) He's third base. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's the, that is the real problem that, that faces us. You see, part of the problem with our kind of government is it denies two definite realities. One is the whole state church thing I spoke of much earlier. The second problem is that every human society has the rulers and the ruled. The rulers are always the minority. The ruled are always the majority. Statistically speaking, wherever you are, wherever you live, you will probably not have much of a say in the course of your life, at least that part of it that belongs to the government to play with you on. I know that's a hard saying, but it's true. Mm. Now, the problem with our system is that it veils these two realities. It covers them up. And as a result, several things happen. Number one, when people begin to realize, having been fed on a steady diet of, well, you know, the people rule, and you matter, and so on and so forth, um, eventually, when they find out one way or another that they don't matter, and they have no control over the, over the way things are done, they begin to imagine all sorts of arcane conspiracies that have taken away your power. <laughs> your power wasn't taken away. You never had any. Mm. Don't be silly. You never, you never had any control. You don't decide on, on your income tax. You never got to vote on the, uh, on the internal revenue. You said earlier about the internal revenue of the revolution. One of the founding fathers, I forget who it was, said you know, 1793 or something like that, we were never never so free of taxes as under the king. Well, uh, you know, careful what you pray for. Or as my late father used to say, give them what they want, good and hard. <laughs> but the, the thing is that that, uh, that reality has been hidden. So not only do people get very resentful when they realize that it's not the way I was taught, but the rulership themselves become irresponsible because they're, they're, to a great degree, invisible. Under a monarchy, uh, especially a, a mixed sort of a setup where, yes, you've got the king, but you've got all sorts of local people and so forth, well, you know whose feet to kiss or whose windows to throw rocks through, depending on what's going to work at that given moment. Um, there is responsibility, but there is none in our system. And you are seeing it now in spades. You know, Voltaire, I hate quoting him, but he had a wonderful quote. It is amazing how long rotten things can last as long as they're not handled roughly. Unfortunately, our system right now is being handled rather roughly. And the rot 
is becoming apparent. Yeah. And the rot's everywhere. Uh, it's in academia. It's in the church. It's in uh, the state. It's in the mayors and the city councils who don't seem to know what police are for. You know, i got to tell you, police are by their nature kind of rough, tough people, and they have very difficult jobs to do. But more whites die at their hands every year than blacks. Mm -hmm. People don't go on about that. There was an interesting interview. They're having these demonstrations now over the Minneapolis murder in uh, Melbourne. Minneapolis murder in Melbourne. Oh, never mind. Australia. And this uh, Indian Australian went around interviewing people, asking them if they'd ever heard of Jacqueline Diamond. And nobody had. I'm sure you haven't. I hadn't until I saw the video. Jacqueline Diamond, a couple of years ago, was an Australian tourist lady who was in her nightgown, was told to stop by a policeman in Minneapolis, same police department, a black policeman. Uh, he told her to stop. She didn't, and he shot her dead. Now, there were no riots all over Australia, were there? They didn't pull out their ambassador. They didn't demand compensation. So you see, regardless of the other issues, we are pretty messed up. We really are. We don't know our rear ends from our elbows or our uh, excrement from uh, shoe polish. You see, I've just translated into... Uh, pleasant terms, <laughs> old vulgarities of my youth. These are the ones uh, that would have been banned, correct? Oh, I would have. You banned. That's right. Not now. Now I could say them if you find. And they go, oh, yeah, that's right. The free speech movement, man. You could sound like a real moron. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. You know, yeah. if you want to be low class, pal, <laughs> I'm the one to come to. All right, fine. But. And there you see is another thing, too. Uh, one of the things that has happened in our society, and this is really, uh, what's the word I want, accelerated since the 60s, but it was happening already. A monarch gives you something to look up to, and, yeah. but hopes an example. So what do you have? Well, you find, you look at old pictures, you see workmen on the sides of the road in three-piece suits. I'm not recommending you wear three-piece suits while working in a, in a mine or a pit the way they did. But what I'm saying is even the poorest among us aspired to be better than they were. Now you've got millionaires paying tons of money for pre-ripped jeans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what, pal? I'll rip your jeans <laughs> for, the, for the amount of money. The amount of money you pay, you pay that to me. And I'll take a pair of bloody Levi's and rip them up for you. How's that? And they'll be Levi's by Coulomb. <laughs> Six grand a pair, incidentally. I'd so, wear them. Out here in Los Angeles, that's a hot ticket. I know. I know. Stupid is good. It seems like it seems like it's the at least in our systems we devise it today, and maybe it's the danger of our republic moving towards things like mob rule. Because genuinely speaking, the concepts of, of justice, uh, law, right, and who holds that sort of thing what we don't see is that we don't see it embodied in maybe the way that you, you would just by the idea of your monarch being your statesman. We, we don't oh, call no. our, our presidents or our governors or anybody statesmen to one of your earlier points. Um, no. There has been a loss of classical education. There has been a loss of, in a monarchy, there does seem to be, it, you know, it seems, it's, it's divine right means that there's an obligation that the king has to God. 
to govern properly. Yeah. And to, that's a dereliction of duty. But we don't even talk about dereliction of duty anymore. Your duty is just to whoever, whoever voted you in. Whoever voted you in. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the fellow I just wrote about, Blessed Emperor Charles, you know, despite what he was put through on his deathbed, he said, uh, I'm, I'm suffering and dying for my peoples that they come back together. Hmm. Now, the idea of the head of state being willing to sacrifice his life for his people, you know, and you see it not just with uh, with Catholics. I mean, certainly you did with Blessed Emperor Carr. You saw it with Louis XVI. You read his last will, you know, and he, he hopes that his blood will not uh, not uh, curse his people but bring about their peace. I mean, gosh, could you imagine a, a president on his way to being executed saying that? He'd be cursing them. Uh-huh. I do have uh, as we uh, as we wrap down. There's there just there's just one final question that I know some of them dying to ask. But who are yeah. uh, who are the examples of the best uh, Catholic monarchs? Who are the the kings or queens that you would have loved to live under? And and as monarchists are starting to pop up all over the place, whom we should start looking into their histories and aspiring to figure out what a better system of governance is for the church and for state. All right. Well. Of course, any any king with a saint before his yeah. name or king her Louis name, forever. Is, 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 <laughs> yeah, Saint Louis the Ninth is is a good one. Uh, you know, uh, Saint Henry the Emperor. If they've got saint before their name, they would generally <laughs> probably know, all right. Pretty pretty okay guys. Uh, certainly, Blessed Emperor Carl, uh, King uh, Louis Sixteenth, his uh, brother Charles the Tenth, uh, Franz Joseph. I mean, the, uh, the only Habsburg I wouldn't have wanted to live under was Joseph II. He was not one of my one of my faves, although Mozart flourished under him. Mm. Um, the czars of Russia, well, Nicholas II uh, was kind of a martyr in a sense, uh, the way Charles I was in England. Yeah, uh, and certainly Charles I in, in England is one of my favorites as well. James II, uh, Queen Mary. Mary the first, so-called Bloody Mary, Mary. not to be confused with Bloody Betsy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Henry the sixth was a saint, seemingly. Mary Queen of Scots, I like, Uh, although I wouldn't have liked to live under her times. Some of these people, you know, you wouldn't have wanted to live there in terms of a peaceful life, but you sure wish you could have stood by them, you know. Mm, Yeah. Uh, The the uh, let me see. And Italy, there are a couple of kings of Naples who were who were pretty neat, and kings of Sardinia, Charles Albert, not Charles Albert, uh, Charles Emmanuel, uh, Charles Victor, Victor Emmanuel the uh, first, Spanish kings. Well, of course, Charles the fifth, the great emperor. You mm-hmm. know, he was he was like Philip the second. Lepanto forever. Uh, I'm sorry. Lepanto forever. <laughs> yeah, indeed, 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 and of course. Uh, Although he had some some problems, we do we all have to venerate the great uh, King Carlos III of Spain, who um, had been King of Naples before and founded the Teatro San Carlo, and before that was the Duke of Parma. So he founded the Bourbon of Two Sisters, Bourbon of Parma. But he did the most astonishing, amazing thing any monarch of any faith across the planet ever did. The greatest contribution world civilization and everyone's welfare collectively it's just such an amazing triumph of, of human spirit and will such an extraordinary thing 
He founded Los Angeles. <laughs> See? That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, his statue is. His statue is. Yes. What, I mean, what war could any monarch have done? Oh, he was my great, I mean, listen, great uncle. If the Mormons are right, when Christ was in America, he must have pre-founded LA. <laughs> Jeez. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want people to think we Angelinos are full of ourselves or anything. Never. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, not that we're nar- it's not that we're narcissistic. Not I. <laughs> no. I'm well, sorry, was I saying something? Oh, I. <laughs> well, Charles... Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we'll have to certainly have you back. Um, if you liked what he had to say, you can follow Charles along. Um, you can get your books, I know, at TumblrHouse.com, who is your publisher. Um, okay. You can also find them on Amazon, which I've just ordered a slew for all my good little Angelino friends out here. Um, where, else are, where else are your writings, Charles? Where else is a good place for people to, to find your work and, and your lecture series and all that good jazz? Oh, boy. Well... Uh, you can find some of my early stuff on Theodore Harvey's royalty site. You can find uh, the American Thinker has some of my stuff. I used to write for the uh, Tacky Mag. They have a lot of uh, a lot of articles by me. Catholicism.org has a lot of my uh, articles, uh, and of course, Tan Books uh, is also a publisher of mine. They um, uh, my last book they brought out, and that was on the Holy Grail, mm. yeah. which uh, I was very very happy. Uh, you know, I, I love I love things Arthurian. Uh, it would be strange if I didn't, frankly. But uh, <laughs> one of the uh, one of my uh, my editors at uh, well, I, I write for the Catholic Herald and I write for Crisis Magazine. Uh, and my current editor, Crisis, Mike Davis, years ago wrote an article which you can find online called uh, "Why I Am a Monarchist." He's one too. And it was interesting because he ends, he, toward the end of it, he says, actually, everyone is monarchist when they're young. We grow up thinking of kings and queens and mm-hmm. princes and princesses and fairy tales. So, so the, real reason, the real question you should ask yourself is not, why am I a monarchist? But when did you yourself stop being stop one? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. When, and I'll, I'll enlarge it, when did you decide it was okay to settle for what we've got? Hmm. Now, I must emphasize one other quick point, and that is I don't advocate, as I say, a great revolution or anything like that, uh, precisely because the last thing I'd want to do is have what we have right now. Hmm. But I can say that Catholic institutions developed out of the conversion of Europe to Catholicism when the native institutions were, were converted and improved, and the result was Catholic monarchy. I, out of that encounter between America and the faith, something good will develop. The scenario I give in Star Spangled Crown is, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's terribly likely. It'd be nice, but mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't bet the farm on it. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I might bet the lives of all the leaders of mobs and current unpleasantness on it, but I wouldn't bet anything else. Uh, and I, I'm sure all the shopkeepers would, would, would match that bet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, and that, that reminds me of, of uh, one other point I'll make, and then I'm done. Uh, not really the monarchy, but the present problems. I used to be 
the sole white columnist in a black magazine in Louisiana called Creole of Lafayette. Unfortunately, it's not online, so you can't get my articles that way. But it was a great magazine to write for. My, uh, my editrix, Ruth Foote, well, I, I still know her. She's brilliant, but unfortunately, she's no longer in the business. A real loss to Jasper. But at any rate, she asked me to do something after the 1992 riots, which I did. I ended it with this question, and I would like everyone out there, especially if they've been involved in the uh, festivities of the past two weeks or two, here it is. How oppressed do I have to be before you think it's okay for me to burn your house or your business? Think carefully about that. And I think if you do think carefully, you will find that it wouldn't matter if I was being beaten to a pulp. You would never think it was okay for me to burn you out. And if it makes you feel any better, I agree with you. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much again for being on. Uh, we very much appreciate it. For everybody out who have been listening, uh, of course, we just gave where you can find all Charles's work. And you can follow along with the Glad Tribe podcast here on YouTube. We also have our Twitter, at Glad Tribe Podcast. You can see all of our podcasts all over the interwebs. Uh, even Charles is. I know that you do your uh, your off the menu with uh, with uh, Victor Franchini. Uh, that's, that's Don Vincenzo. We, Vincenzo. We call him before. Don, <laughs> Don Vincenzo. We're very careful. We don't. Mm. You know, you don't really want to upset my producer. No. He's a very nice. <laughs> no, man. I don't want to. I don't want to ruin it with the with the suits. Also at Tumblr House, we hear from time to time. Well, see, it's 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 what you call a double whammy. You know, the suits will arrive with, uh, you know, <laughs> briefcases full of subpoenas. <laughs> and, then, and then on the other hand, the other side of the family will be, you know, Mr. Pacheco, it's a nice a nice home you've got there. It'd be terrible oh, if something happened to it. No, not the farm. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, well, from all of us here, everybody, please take care. God bless you. Mary, keep you. We'll see you on the next one. Adios. God bless all. Bye-bye.